Thank you very much for downloading the 51st edition of Scoring at the Movies, the sports movie podcast that ekes into your eardrums every other Thursday. We review old sports pictures around here and we spoil them as much as humanly possible. I'm the guy declaring this a dictatorship, Coach Ryan Ellis. And here's the defensive coach who's overcooking my grits, my brother, Lord Christy Gregorio. (laughs) Thank you, Ryan. And you might eke into people's ears, but I just... Slam in there. Left side strong, baby. There's no keeping me <laughs> Left out. Side, strong side. <laughs> left side, strong, strong side. Left side, strong side. I go nowhere near the right ear. I just penetrate the left side. That's my only goal. I'm just going to jump straight into a beer cracking. What are you drinking over there? You know, with the things being the way they are, my usual beer selection options are not quite up to par, so I'm just going with whatever's in my fridge. <laughs> Makes you pucker, sucker. A little sour ale. I can't remember if I've had this one before. I may have done. Oh, it's green and red and a little yellow. Oh, very mm. colorful. Very Christmassy. Nothing says Christmas like May 1st. <laughs> we are recording this on May the 1st, almost two weeks before it'll go up online. We've now passed 50 episodes. We did Air Bud and the Top 5 and also the Toilet 5 a couple weeks ago. And yet we still have to do this in our homes because of covid Maybe there's a light at the end of the tunnel. Who knows? Maybe by the time yeah. we get to our June episodes, well, we'll do the June episodes in May, but anyway, possibly you'll be back in the house by sometime this summer. Hopefully. In my house, I mean. All right. Remember the Titans is today's episode, and it was released by Disney going on 20 years ago on September 29th, 2000. It was a big hit for the House of Mouse. Cost them like $30 million and made well over $100 million. That is a giant profit for Disney. What'd you think of it, actually? I haven't seen it since 2001, probably, on DVD, or maybe even videotape might have been at that point. I definitely enjoyed it. I looked at my old records. I gave it an 8 out of 10. And we'll re-rank it for me, at least, later on. But what'd you think of Remember the Titans? The 8 of the 10 was your past ranking from way back when? I ranked movies starting around 2000. I would give them whatever at a 10. So sometimes they got a 10, but usually it'd be 6 or 7 or 8. And I gave this an 8, so I must have loved it. I don't remember liking it that much, but I guess I did. This was the first time I've seen this movie start to finish. I've seen bits and pieces of it here and there in some of Denzel's rousing speeches or the who's your daddy, who's your daddy kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. I've seen that a bunch, never seen it start to finish, but I liked it. I thought it was pretty well done. If you were to say that this movie was made, I don't know, like 2010 or 2015 for only $30 million, I would have been blown away just based on the cast in it. Because you've got Denzel, of course, but you have a litany of actors and actresses that either became super famous or at least relatively well-known. Ethan Supley, of course, is a ubiquitous character actor. Who's Petey? I'm blanking on the guy's name now from Scrubs. Donald Faison. Donald Faison, of course. Also clueless before this. Bev and I covered that, I think, last year. Ryan Gosling, of course. Hayden Penetier, who's the actress that plays Gary's girlfriend, who's a relatively well-known actress. In Kate her Bosworth. Kate Bosworth. There is a litany of actors in this movie that did very well for themselves. Well, also Ryan Hurst and Wood Harris, the two, in a way, main characters. Obviously, Denzel Washington and Will Patton are the main characters, but Ryan Hurst and Wood Harris... 
as why am I drawing a blank on their names? Julius is Wood. Gary and Hurst. Gary, of course. Gary Bertier. That's a cool name. How did I forget that name? Spelled Jerry, but pronounced Gary apparently. <laughs> right. And they're players too. Ryan Hurst is acing it for a lot of people, at least on The Walking Dead. I think he's playing a little bit one note, but anyway, people are saying good things about that for the last couple of years he's been on. He was in Saving Private Ryan as well. And then Wood Harris was Avon Barksdale on The Wire, which is around the same time as this. And he's also in Creed and Creed 2. We covered Creed 2 last year. For me, this might be one of the more difficult movies we've reviewed to talk about in a podcast format because it's pretty darn good. There's not a lot to pick apart about it. It's not funny. Well, not trying to be either, too. We've no, been critical of, of the movies that fail to be funny, and this isn't trying to. No, of course. It's trying to be the opposite. But the one thing that did kind of bother me about this movie was the choice of casting that they made, which is not to say that the actors and actresses in the movie did a poor job. I thought, by and large, they did a good job. But this is supposed to be a high school football team. And all of the people that play the athletes on the team look like full-grown, developed men. And when you look at the actors, they're all between like 24 and in their early 30s in some cases. Those are grown men. And they're not even seniors, all of them, in this movie. There's a lot of juniors and sophomores on this team as well. So they should be scrawny, gangly-looking people. And aside from Ryan Gosling, none of them are. That was a bit of a contrast to the Friday Night Lights experience for me, because whether or not those actors were younger, they looked more like high schoolers than they did in this movie. Well, I actually wrote down a lot of the ages... Because I thought this might come up. Ryan Hurst, who's Gary, was 23. Wood Harris was only 20, so not that much older than he should have been. Wood Harris was only 20? I thought he was 30. Did I do bad math? Maybe I did bad math. Well, I can confirm that, and I'll put a note on the website if I'm the one who's wrong. Kit Pardue, who plays Sunshine, the quarterback, was 24. Gosling was 18, so he's very much the right age. Suplee was 23. And then these aren't football players, but Hayden Panettiere was 10. And she is in a constant state of apoplexy. Whenever she watches this team play, she's always so mad. She's like Fox. I'm so mad. And Kate Bosworth was 16 years old, so she's very much the right age. This is what blows me away. The two female leads, effectively, of this movie are correctly cast for their characters' ages. Yep. But the guys, all of the athletes, they just don't look like teenage boys playing football. I think you're right, and the reason why that would probably be true is that now, in the last 20 or 25 years, maybe a little longer, but at least that long, young men want to look really great. They want those great muscles. So they do something that makes them not look like they're in the 1970s. This movie's set in 1971, and it ends, the brief stuff at the end, the bookend scenes are 1981. But that's part of the problem, is you cast people who are, they've got washboard abs. And yet people in 1971, very few people did. It's very hard to develop that way if you're a teenager. That's what made people like LeBron James freaks. I say that in the best possible way. But when he was drafted as an 18-year-old, he looked like a huge developed man at 18. And that was the exception to the rule. Zion Williamson being another... And I know basketball players more than football players. This is why I'm citing them. But they're 18-year-olds <laughs> playing with men and they look like men. But 98% of the people out there, they look like Ryan Gosling. And there's nothing wrong with that. I just wish it was a little bit more true to life. I did just quickly check. Wood Harris was born in 1969, so he would have been about 30. Oh, I did do bad math then. Right, okay. Because they would have been shooting this in 1999. 
You're right, he would have been 30. Okay, and he doesn't really look like a kid, you're right. It's not the end of the world, certainly. But the authenticity's hurt, it's true. And this is based on a true story, so authenticity is important. The actors all did a good job in their roles, so once I was able to settle down my inner pedant about the casting of this movie and <laughs> just enjoy it a little bit more, I really did. Donald Faison was never my favorite actor. I used to love Scrubs as a show. He was not my favorite in that show. I liked him a lot in this movie. He might have been my favorite player just because of the petulance. It felt more true to a 16-year-old. His moods were wildly swinging and hormonal in the way that you would expect a teenage boy to be, especially when he's being booted around on the team in terms of his role. I enjoyed that, even if he is 26 or something at the time of this movie's filming. He is a few months younger than me. He was born in 1974, so yes, he would have been 25 when they were shooting. Good on Donald Faison. He was in really good shape for this movie. The guy had guns. I was jealous. All right, let me get some numbers out of the way, and then we'll get back into the storyline here. Rotten Tomatoes numbers, 73% of critics like this film, which isn't bad. 6.3 to 10 as an average, but 93% of audiences. So, again, this is an audience picture. Airbud was two weeks ago, too, but then it didn't actually get a fresh <laughs> tomato. It just got more fans <laughs> on the side than critics. Sorry, did you say 6 out of 10 critics? 73%, but the average they would give it would be 6.3 out of 10. Oh, I'm surprised that it's that low. Well, the critics probably thought it was a bit of a cliche and i guess it was but it's also because a lot of movies since this one including movies made by disney like glory road which we should cover and i prefer it the basketball movie josh lucas and all that i really like that movie a lot and i bought it because i like it so much but it's very cliche too it's not that surprising much like this isn't i think it's also yeah it's also based on a true story and it's also got racial issues so Disney had a formula, and they kept repeating it. We've covered quite a few Disney sports movies now, because Air Bud was Disney, Mighty Ducks was Disney, Angels in the Outfield was Disney, and if we do Glory Road, that'll be Disney. I think Miracle was too, wasn't it? Yeah, I want to say yes, but don't quote me on Even that Even if one. it wasn't, they were very clean. And that's one thing about this movie that is not authentic as well, so we are nitpicking. These guys, these young men, anywhere in the world, but especially in basically middle America, and because they've got such racial strife, and at first, the white, well, both sides, really, but the white guys hate the black guys, you're telling me they wouldn't say A, the N-word, and B, they wouldn't swear? Come on. But it's Disney, yeah. so that's why they didn't. The swearing, 100%, and you're right, probably some of the racial cursing as well. I'm always curious. Whenever I see a movie that's based on, and I'm air-quoting here, of course, based on a true story, you always wonder how loosely that's true, Right. Whenever we watch a movie that is based on a true story, I'm always doing a little bit of reading to find out how true to life it is. And that's one of the reasons why I'll forgive the cliche nature of this, because by and large, as far as the overarching plot of this movie goes and the football team, it's true. They integrated as a school. This is the season they had, and they won their state title. The two biggest things I think from what I was reading that are not true, not that these are a big deal because they still essentially happened. One is that the final score was not close as opposed to this coming down to the last play, and then the defensive coach getting to make the call and all that. And the other thing is that Bertier was injured before the playoffs, so he was injured after the regular season. But he does play in one of the playoff games at least, or was it multiple playoff games, before he misses the finals. You're right about the final score, but I read the Bertier thing. He played in the championship game. He was hurt after the playoffs were done. Oh, maybe I miswrote that down. I'm screwing up again, just like the age of Wood Harris. The racial tensions were certainly there, in Virginia or West Virginia in 1971? Not West Virginia, Virginia. Right. How close is Alexandria, Virginia, where this is set? They shot it in Georgia, most of it. Some of it was in Virginia, but most was in Georgia that they shot. But it's set at T.C. Williams High in Alexandria, Virginia. So how close is that to, for example, Washington, D.C.? It's a 20-minute drive. That's it. Mm. And then look at the racial strife. Now, of course, a lot of black people could say, it doesn't matter where you are in America or even Canada, 
isn't about the North and South. It's racist. And of course, DC had plenty of it too. Virginia, I didn't really know how far south it is, and it's not very, but this is also the northern part of Virginia, and yet look at what was going on. So just imagine if this movie was taking place in more of the deep south, which I think Glory Road does. I don't recall right now, but I think the basketball movie does. I'm sure, if anything, it would be worse. I think it was the actual assistant coach, the defensive coach in this movie. Yost. I should remember that because of Ned Yost and my hatred for Ned Yost and what he did to my beloved Blue Jays. He was talking about the differences between the reality and the movie. And from what he was saying, yeah, there's racial tension there. The whole throwing something through Coach Boone's window was true. But the tensions on the team were not quite as crazy as the film made it out to be. Were they healed as fast as they are in this movie? Because they're healed pretty fast. Well, that's what he said. He said that school-wide, the entire school on its first day, there was a little bit of angst and a few incidents in the school. But by the end of the first day, from his accounting anyway, the kids were like, all right, this is what it is now, fine. They were better about it than the adults in the town were, which frankly makes a little bit of sense to me. I think young folks, and I don't include myself as a young folk anymore. You can probably tell that by the fact I say things like young folk, but like, <laughs> you just adapt. You change a little bit more readily, right? You're not set in your ways the same way that you become as you get to our age, right? And so I can certainly see teenagers being more willing to just say like, yeah, okay, this is 1971. We're progressive now. So let's do this. We're just one school. Unless you're Kate Bosworth's character who can only shake the hand of the black man at the very end of the film. Yeah. But it's a nice touch when she does. Okay, so let me ask you about that. I wanted to ask you about her character generally, because she barely pops up in this movie. And almost always, it's either to snub Julius. She rags on her boyfriend, Bertier, for wanting to hang out with teammates rather than her and her white friends. Especially the black ones, yeah. Especially, yeah. She probably wouldn't be so mad if it was just the white ones. Oh, no, of course not. And then she says, I'll try to be better, but not as fast as you'll like to Bertier later. And then after his accident, when he's in the hospital, she goes to the final game to shake Julius's hand. So she's basically only there, as far as I can tell, to be a quasi proxy for the white people in town generally. And their grudging and gradual acceptance of the black players on the team. Is that mm-hmm. your take as I well? I think you're exactly right. That's what it is. Yep. Because the white players who are racist, apart from the guy who gets kicked off the team because he's an ass, and it's Bertier who makes the call. He's the one that says to Coach Boone, Denzel, get rid of him. Because he saw the guy in a game, not just practice now or training camp, but Bertier mends his relationship with Julius in basically one practice when they start doing the left side, strong side thing. But the other guy never gets over it. And then during the regular season, he deliberately misses a block. That's when, is it Petey's the quarterback, right? That's when he gets hurt. And then no, it wasn't Petey. It was Rev. Right. Rev's the quarterback. He gets hurt on that play. Sunshine's got to start playing now. But Bertier definitely saw it. He knows what the guy did on purpose, and he makes sure his friend is kicked off the team. Right. Which is definitely showing leadership. That's one thing about Bertier I like an awful lot. Ryan Hurst plays him very well, I think. But one of the problems I have with the movie is that they rush things a little bit much. I didn't want the movie to be longer. It's not quite two hours. It's an hour and 53 minutes, which is a long enough running time for any movie, I would say, about this. Based on a true story, you're leaving out a lot of facts, of course. But a lot of things seem like they were unfinished or it was rushed. When everyone stands up for Yost, that could probably be a whole story in its own right because nobody wanted the school to be integrated like this. The black kids didn't want to be with the white kids either. It wasn't just the white kids didn't want the black kids there. And then all the players, especially Bertier and his buddy, are saying, we're not ever going to play for that. Well, they probably would have been saying the N-word, but we're not going to play for that guy, meaning Boone. But then that's just resolved when Yost says, no, you're not going to ruin your high school football playing days for me. 
And then Yost and Boone have conflicts. I did like that Yost and Boone have conflicts for the whole film. That was a good thing. Until the very end where they finally do connect. Because there's still prickles with them in the last maybe 15 minutes of the movie. Before the championship game. And then when Boone says, Yost, you make the call. And that's the one that wins them the game. Then they're finally connected. But we already know they would be because the opening scene shows them walking right beside each other. Aren't they even holding hands? Or Well, they're not. They are in my dreams. <laughs> <laughs> they're just two actors you love so much. Denzel Washington and Will Patton having... Off the movie sex. Out of the movie sex. Yeah. They do rush a lot of things in this movie, and that's not a big deal. I think Glory Road probably is the same. But they introduce so many different characters, and they give them a decent amount of things to do, even the ones that aren't the big stars. But then it seems like that's it, including them having problems at training camp and then just being over with. If you're saying that's based on reality, then okay. But in a movie sense, it just felt like... Well, we fixed this because... Now, then again, two leaders, the black leader and the white leader, and, of course, Bertier was literally the leader of this team. He's the captain of the team. If they're going to mend their differences, then everyone else does fall in line, apart from the friend. Okay, I guess i got to go with that, but it did feel a little bit forced. There are aspects of the movie that feel rushed. It's funny, because how many movies have we watched where I've complained because it felt long and bloated? Cobb, not long ago, was a very long-feeling movie. And this, to me, was the exact opposite. The runtime is just under two hours, but it felt well-paced. It moved fairly quickly. And if I had to complain about anything, it's exactly what you described. There's some threads in the movie I wish had been given a little bit more breathing room. And that racial tension off the hop might have been one of those things. Just even give it a few more scenes or a little bit more rankling in amongst yourselves when you're trying to work things out. Because like you, I had to set aside my, really? You're going to overcome your differences that quickly kind of thought? But apparently they more or less did, and apparently more or less in the same way that the movie depicts. They were forced into two buses in the way that's described. They went to camp for a week, the way it's described in the movie. And they were put through three-a-days, as described in the movie, until they figured themselves out. So I get from a movie perspective it felt rushed. I agree with that 100%. I just can't rag on it too much for that because I complain about the opposite so much. I did want to call back your comments about the two coach characters. I think it was a very valid one, too, because that relationship and the way the movie depicted those two coaches, Boone and Yost, was my favorite thing about this movie. You talk about cliches, and if you look at this movie as a whole, yeah, it's kind of cliched the way it plays out. But those two characters themselves could have fallen into such cliches so early on, and I thought they were going to, frankly. When Yost is introduced as, for lack of a better term, the white messiah coach of this school... And he gets usurped by the school board, and Denzel's character Boone gets put in there. As we find out, it's basically only a PR move that's not anticipated to last even into the beginning of the year, but of course it does. And it's not Boone's choice either. Boone is not trying to make this happen. Right. Boone's not trying to make it happen either. I don't think that particular aspect of the movie is necessarily true, that school board machination behind the scene to get Boone out ASAP and Yost back in. But for the purposes of the movie, I guess it added some tension. What I expected to happen immediately was, one, Yost was going to quit, not become the defensive coach, probably become the coach of their arch-rival team and show up as the nemesis at the end of the movie. That's kind of what I thought was going to happen. So to have him say, okay, I don't like this. I feel like I deserve to be the head coach, but I'm going to stick around because if I don't, a lot of these young kids that I care about are going to quit nominally because of me, and I don't want them to do that. I don't want them to throw away all the hard work. So I thought that was a really nice little touch, especially the way it was portrayed. They could have had that happen and had it portrayed in a way that wasn't nearly as effective as this movie did. It's fairly subtle. It isn't a big scene when it happens. And I think that's a credit to the actor as well as the writing for him to pull that off and for the writing to be as subtle as it was. Good on Disney for a fairly big screen production like this. And for Denzel's character's part, 
you're right. He didn't want it. There's a fairly interesting scene, particularly when you talk about stuff being rushed. There's a scene where he's told, okay, you're going to become the head coach now. The school board wants you, so you're in and Yost is out. And he says, well, listen, when I was at my last school, I was passed over for a promotion and given to somebody else for political reasons that didn't know his head from a football or something. And I don't want to do that to somebody else. I want to earn this. I don't want it to be given to me for reasons out of my control. If they had had that happen and then maybe a little bit of time pass, a few more scenes, maybe give that room to breathe. That would have been fun. But immediately, of course, his wife, Denzel's wife, comes out and says, you got to go see what's going on in the front yard. Basically, every black resident of this town is on his yard saying, you're here to save us and represent our community. Whether or not that actually happened, fine. It works for the scene. But they should have, I think, maybe spaced that out a little bit because it kind of immediately negated Denzel's moral qualms about the job. Oh, well, I got to do it now. So, okay, I'll just take the head coach job. That's true. That's fair. You said you like the relationship best in the movie, and it's very good. But I do prefer the Bertier julius campbell relationship even more and i think the two young actors not that young i guess but youngish actors are great together that's the thing about this movie where i remember the most after not having seen it for nearly two decades was the brian song-esque storyline now i haven't seen brian song i guess ever and if i ever have it's been a very long time that's a tv movie from the 70s billy d williams and i think james con there's i think a racial strife thing one of them gets hurt i think it's james con or the white guy and the black guy is as close to him as Julius is with Bertier in this. That's the thing I always remembered. I think it's really well played. But it does lead me to my nutshell. Bertier has to make a choice because basically Kate Bosworth's character is telling him, him or me, effectively, she doesn't say that, but that's what she means. So my nutshell is, teenager puts bro before ho and ends up paralyzed. <laughs> Karma. Wow. I don't like bros before hoes, but it does work for the nutshell purposes. I've used that before with Bev. And she's certainly not a hoe either. Poor guy tries to do the moral thing, and you're putting that on his choice? Bad juju, Ryan. But that is pretty sweet when he's rooting for the team. I like the part about how I'm paralyzed, coach. I ain't dead. So he wants to help out the team. And I guess in real life he did, even though he's in a wheelchair the rest of the time. You know, he died, didn't he? Yeah, of course he died 10 years later. So for the next 10 years he's in a wheelchair, but still was a part of the team. In a way. Much like Booby Miles, after a while, not right away, in Friday Night Lights, another high school football movie we've covered, also based on reality. In fact, I was just looking before we called each other here on Zoom tonight. Of the sports movies we've covered, football is now seven times we've done that. Three of the seven have been based on true stories. And two of those three are high school movies. Rudy's the third one, Friday Night Lights, and now Remember the Titans. I don't know what it is about football movies based on reality, but that's almost half the ones we've covered. I think it just has to do with how much football exists in America at various levels. That If you have that much football and that many teams being played and that many people playing it, right? Because think of how big football teams are. If you have that many people, that many games, that many teams, you're going to have interesting stories that happen over time and those get turned into movies, right? So it makes a certain amount of sense. You mentioned Rudy. It's not at all like Rudy in many senses, right? But it had kind of a Rudy-esque vibe in terms of the emotion it's trying to elicit from you as you progress to the end of the movie and you're trying to get that audience reaction of triumph. This movie Less whining, though. A little less whining. Well, well, I want to play for Notre Dame. There was a lot of whining at the beginning of this movie, and maybe that's why it kind of reminded me a little bit of Rudy. Is because what well, didn't come across as whining? I don't think it's not at a place whining, mind you, right? Because these are 1971 kids that are being forced into unfamiliar territory when they're being integrated forcibly, not without excuse, but there's whining. But this movie succeeded for me where Rudy failed. The moments in this movie that almost have become memefied since the who's your daddy stuff which i remember seeing clipped time and time again over the last 20 years the remember the titans speech 
who are we? We're mobile, hostile, some of these defensive chants and things. There's moments in this movie that could have been, I don't want to say ruined by time, but the reaction we had to Rudy, particularly things like the slow clapping scene where we look at that now and groan internally. I don't find any of that in this movie. Everything they did was so subtly done that it holds up 20 years later. And I think it's every bit as effective now as it was 20 years ago when it was filmed. It doesn't feel like a 20 year old movie, quite honestly. It holds up pretty well because I didn't walk out of it feeling too eye rolly. I think I might have even had just a little bit of salty discharge with the Bertier stuff towards the end. I didn't finish some of the numbers. There's not that much more to say, but it was 18th at the 2000 US box office because it made quite a bit of dollarage for Disney. The Grinch was number one. Gladiator, which Bev and I covered a few months ago, was number four. And you and I covered Bring It On, I think it was last year, and that was number 37. Was Kate Bosworth in Bring It On? No, you're thinking of Kirsten Dunst. Yeah, I am thinking of Kirsten Dunst. The off-covered right. Kirsten Dunst on this channel. And this movie was nominated for the Top 100 Cheers, the most inspirational movies. Didn't make that list, but it was not nominated for the sports category of the Top 100 Genres. I was a little surprised. I thought maybe it would be. I'm both surprised that it wasn't nominated for sports and that if it was nominated for Cheers, that it wasn't in Didn't the Top 100. Yeah. There's a lot of sports movies on the list, though, so that's probably one reason why whoever's voting probably thought, well, I've already got Rocky and I've already got whatever else on there. Breaking Away, the cycling movie is in the top ten, I think, and I think Rocky is, too. So I can't vote for every sports movie. So another movie where Hollywood is saying, we're not so different. Like Glory Road does six years later and other movies have. That's fine. I like the Hollywood has that message. It's kind of like the message, though, in a way where they say, spend time with your family. Do you people that work 18-hour days? Are you not racist in Hollywood? Yes, you are. You're probably better than most people in the country. But anyway, that's fine. That's what the movie's about. You mentioned the toilet that went through the window in reality. Bricks go through the window here. And that's when Cheryl is over at the Boone household. And that's when somebody throws a brick through the window. She's witnessing that. There's a nice little bit, though, where she doesn't want to play with Boone's daughter. She wants to watch game film with him. Those two girls were kind of cute, too. Hayden Pentier is one of those actresses that I'm not a huge fan of generally. As an adult. Never seen her in anything this early. She was really good as this young... She was great as a 10-year-old. She's excellent. Super angry 10-year-old sports fan. She was awesome. I never saw Heroes. Was she good in that? I didn't like her in that, to be honest with you. I know she's had a long run on Nashville since then. I've never watched Nashville. But that little relationship between her character and Boone's daughter was pretty funny, too. You dress funny. Now you dress funny. And Cheryl tries to throw the ball to Boone's daughter, who just lets it go by. And I just did my nails. What's wrong with you? And Cheryl also trying to tell her about football. And I don't care. Yeah, yeah Cheryl, nice touch, don't care. <laughs> she does carry by the championship game because she's hugging right back when Cheryl hugs her when they win. But then she knows her dad succeeds, so she's probably happy about that. And I guess the idea, too, is she started to come around a little bit as the season progressed. Incidentally, the mother of that kid, so Denzel's character's wife, Nicole Ari Parker, does help the score quotient in this movie. She's lovely. Doesn't have almost anything to do whatsoever, but she's a pretty attractive wife in this. Anyway, just want to make that point. Denzel's a great-looking guy. <laughs> Nicole Ari Parker, young Kate Bosworth. Not a bad-looking cast. You get a lot of mid-20s beefcake action going on in this movie, too, right? Well, and the lead actor himself is one of the most beautiful men in the history of Hollywood, Denzel. Not so much with this haircut, but... Well, somebody said, I don't know when it was, that he had the perfect face, at least for movie stars. They did some kind of analysis of that. Oh, really? Proportionally, all that kind of stuff, that they broke it down and thought he's got a literally perfect face. Huh. That was quite a long time ago. Just masculine enough to be the rugged lead actor type, but still slightly feminine enough in its features to be super handsome slash beautiful. Is that what you're going for there? 
Yeah. And in this movie, he really does pull off commanding quite well. When he says, it's a dictatorship and I'm the law, I believe him. That's not the coaching style of Yost. Doesn't seem like it was when he was the head coach. We don't know. We didn't really see much of that. We see at one point he's trying to coddle players. He's more than willing to do that, mm -hmm. which I think I do more often than not when I'm a captain of our team. I'd rather coddle than yell. Not to say I've always been very nice either. I've made my mistakes. But <laughs> I guess I'm a combination of the two people. But Boone is a high school football coach, especially under these kinds of pressures. I can see why he'd be the way he is. I've been talking to the commissioner of the league, and I hate to tell you this, but you were only hired as the head coach of the softball team for political reasons. And the first game you lose, you're out. I respect that. <laughs> you're on a thin rope here. If we play this year. We'll just all be wearing full body suits. <laughs> we'll have to, yeah, full condoms. So as far as the race stuff goes, there's the whole I won't play for a black coach that gets glossed over. And Campbell seems like he's more aloof than anything. Even with the black guys. It's not like he's Mr. Personality with them, I wouldn't say. Who's Campbell? Julius Campbell. Oh, Julius Campbell. Yeah, yeah. But then he has the relationship fixed with Beertier. But one of the best things in the movie, actually, is the way that Ethan Suplee, Mr. Innocence, is just always cool with them, especially mm -hmm. with Petey and Rev. But that helps, too. He's such a nice kid. As soon as he talks about, I'll never go to college, you know, he's going to college when this is over. He has to go to college. That's an arc he has to have. But he was fairly new to movies. He'd been in Kevin Smith's movies before this in small roles. What am I talking about? How is he new to movies? American History X. Two years before this film, he plays a ridiculously racist character. And in this, he's the complete opposite. He's the one who's always accepting everyone. I watched American History X again recently. I hadn't seen him in quite a long time. I knew he was, but wow, he's as bad as anybody in that movie when it comes to being blatantly racist. But not in this movie. He's the polar opposite. For a guy that's often been given the goofy role because of his size, he's since gotten ripped, which is weird. Yeah, Ethan Suplee I like a lot. I like that the ice-breaking comment in the whole thing was describing, was it Julius's underwear, his leopard skin thong or whatever, when he's being asked to just No, it wasn't Julius, because Julius was rooming with Bertier's the... Bertier's opposite number, yeah. It's kind of a comedic take on the, like, oh, okay, well, let's learn something about each other. As you said, when we meet Ethan Suplee's character and he talks about, oh, I'm too stupid to go to college, I'm just waiting for the Disney movie that sets up that character. And then the payoff at the end is that he leans into his coach and he says, Coach, I failed! <laughs> I'm so much dumber than even you thought! <laughs> My grades were so much worse than I thought they'd be. They didn't improve at all. <laughs> they regressed. You did my homework for me and they got worse. <laughs> Coach, you're dumb. Worst tutor ever. I shouldn't have relied on a physical education teacher to be my <laughs> math tutor. What was wrong with me? <laughs> so let's talk about the ending game. And the ending just in general with the where are they now stuff, which we see in most based on reality movies, just like Miracle had this, of course. It's a very satisfying ending, actually. You want them to win, and they do. Mm -hmm. Although Friday Night Lights, they lose, and it's actually, in a lot of ways, I think, more satisfying. As far as the where are they now, end credits, everyone did something pretty cool, which always seems to be the case. Nobody ever gets lost in the 70s doing drugs or died in Vietnam <laughs> or what have you. Not but... even Sunshine, who's doing Tai Chi on the front lawn of the school at one point while the girls are looking at him. He's the dreamboat, yeah. Who also gets along with everybody right away, the black guys and the white guys. I guess by then, that racial stuff is not really an issue anymore anyway. But when he's there, he doesn't even seem to be the one that has to be brought up to speed that, hey, we're cool with everybody in this team. He already is cool with everyone in this team. But anyway, I thought the game action in general was pretty cool. And I thought the ending was just fine. Very adequate. Not as exciting as some other sports movies have been with the very end. But it was pretty solid. What about you? What do you think of the ending action? What do you think of the action in general in this movie, the football action? I'll address the action generally first, which I thought was pretty good. You referenced Rev 
getting plastered. I think it's like the third game of the season or something like that when Ray intentionally lets the guy slip by him to sack the quarterback, right? So Sunshine ends up going in at QB. Of course, immediately takes down the offensive tackle on the other team, showing his badassness in addition to being like a cool California dude. I don't know if it's the actor playing the character because he takes over a quarterback and then there's a sequence of shots of him playing QB. He's a lefty too, which was interesting. But I don't know if that's the actor himself or a stunt double, but whoever it was, I thought did a fantastic job of portraying a quarterback, had a great throw. It looked so good. It wasn't one of those things where you see an actor fade back holding the ball and then it's a tight close up on his head and then you see the ball in the air or anything. It was a continuous shot of whoever it was, the actor or otherwise, carrying the ball, throwing the ball, and you could just follow it downfield. It was just very well shot. Well, it's probably him. He looks like an athlete, so he it makes does, sense yeah. it could be him. The next year after this, he was in Driven with Sly playing a race car driver. I didn't like that movie at all. I haven't seen it since I saw it in the theater. It's a terrible movie. That's different. It's not really a sports movie per se. There's no throwing involved. But if he was convincing in that movie, and I'm saying if, then maybe he's just a good athlete. It could be. And we've talked about similar things with other better known actors of course talked about Kevin Woody Costner Harrelson and Kevin Costner are just flat out good athletes exactly I really enjoyed that I liked a lot of the training stuff I thought it was very reminiscent of old school football mentality even though we've seen that in movies like Rudy and Friday Night Lights you can't do that anymore to people you can't do that to kids anymore the whole you don't get a glass of water till I tell you people have died so that's not allowed anymore this movie was not funny nor is it intended to be right it's a very serious movie in tone and story but the one thing that did make me laugh was when Denzel's character was putting those poor guys through their three-a-days in the heat of Gettysburg in the middle of the summer. And he tells them, water makes you weak, pain makes you strong. I'm thinking, hold on a second there. That's the exact opposite. Water makes you strong. Water makes you not die from dehydration <laughs> in Denzel. But they are children. They're still <laughs> kids. That's the other thing about this movie. My nutshell was going to involve something with concussions and the fact that, well, these children we're watching have concussions. Ryan Gosling throwing up on the field after the practice right. and stuff like that. That was yeah. a nice touch, too, that he says to the guy after, is it Petey that gets benched? And then Gosling's character is saying, no, coach, I'm getting beat out there. Put him in there. He's better yeah. than me. I had said I like the game action generally. What I appreciated about aspects of the way this movie was portrayed particularly in the last game but it happened earlier in the season as well the characters are not necessarily universally selfless but they're also not universally selfish and they're not all just out to win you have some guys that are kind of out for number one julius is early on he specifically says i'm going to get mine presumably to get a college scholarship or something and ray is i would say selfish he never learns a lesson either because he gets kicked off the team and i don't think we ever see him again do we he's cut and then he's gone right Ryan Gosling's character says, listen, I don't want the team to lose because you're trying to teach PD a lesson on my account. Just put him in. The coach said, well, you want him in, you go tell him he's going to go play. There's a lot of emotional maturity and responsibility expected of some young players in this movie, which I thought was kind of effective and nice. I didn't dislike it in the way I might have thought I would like this kind of overly emotional and sometimes maudlin stuff. Yost is the moral compass for Boone through this movie, which I thought was kind of a fun touch as well as a guy that, like I said, could have just been the cliche antagonist. We've talked throughout this podcast history about the guy in these movies. Invariably, it's always the guy that comes out and says, I'm all about winning. That guy, whoever it is, is going to be... I don't think we've sworn yet, so I'm trying not to use any bad language. He's not going to be a nice guy. <laughs> He's probably going to be the antagonist or the villain of the movie. He's going to be a meanie. He's going to be a meanie, yeah. 
But that guy in this movie is Denzel's character, right? At one point he tells Yost, I'm a winner. I got to win. Eventually they kind of rub off on each other, right? And Yost convinces him, okay, you don't have to be go, 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 win at all costs all the time. But at the same time, Yost takes a little bit of that hard edge mentality. And sometimes you got to sacrifice to win from Denzel, which he does at the end of the movie. Okay, I'm going to sacrifice myself. I'm going to sacrifice my entrance into the Virginia High School Football Hall of Fame or whatever the heck it's supposed Mm -hmm. to be. And I'll be the one to speak to the official because if Boone does it again, he's going to get kicked out of the game, right? I liked the final game more than I thought I would. I'll put it that way. It's not perfect. And it's not as rousing as some things we've seen in the past. But it could have so easily been Rudy where we both rolled our eyes and groaned. And I didn't. Very much agreed. Yeah. And Yost, in a way, is the kind of guy who would say right is right. Then again, he doesn't seem like he's ever really been a racist person. The other guys are. That's why I say they probably should have made this movie more honest and used the words they'd be using, but it's Disney, so you're not going to. But the guys, the young guys at least, were definitely thinking, you know what they're thinking, they just didn't actually say it. But it doesn't seem like Yost really felt that way. He was no. cheesed he lost a job, but it didn't seem like he was cheesy lost a job to a black guy. And then again, affirmative action, by the way, I meant to say this earlier, I understand why people are against it sometimes, and you and I have had this discussion before, but I've never had to face it, so I don't have an experience with that. Affirmative action obviously did make things a little more equal. A lot of black people in America would say not nearly enough. And they're probably right. They know better than me. But it was more equal than it was before. And in this case with Boone, he's very qualified. So it's affirmative action, but it's for somebody who very much deserves this job. Not the way he got it. That was unfortunate. But that wasn't his fault. It wasn't Yost's fault. It wasn't the player's fault. It was the way the redistricting and the school board handled it. But at least this guy is very qualified. And then again, the real guys, Boone and Yost, worked together for, what was this, like four more years. It's one of the more impressive aspects of the movie to me is that for a film company like Disney, for a relatively big picture like this, that they handled, like you said, affirmative action with such subtlety and complexity in the way that the characters involved handle it. I was honestly a little bit blown away when Boone went on his little tirade about, I don't want it handed to me in this way. And he's not apologetic about his qualifications ever in the movie. I think there's two or three scenes where he basically lays out his bona fides for people and says, listen, I won four championships. I was 99 and six. I'm a damn good head coach, but I didn't apply for the head coach job and I don't want it handed to me just because of the color of my skin. I want to earn it and I will. I just thought it was interesting that they presented that kind of inner monologue, even if the character is actually speaking it. It's never happened to me, obviously. Like We're two white dudes, so affirmative action doesn't really apply to us in that kind of context. I imagine it's got to be something like that. If you're handed a job and you know it's not because necessarily of your qualifications, even if you are qualified, that's not necessarily the reason you're given it, it messes with your head a little bit, right? Yeah. You want to know that you earned it. You want to know that you can feel good about it. I am qualified and it's being offered to me, so I should take it. It's just a very complicated thing in a lot of ways. And I applaud Denzel and I applaud the writers for the way they handled this movie. Well, Denzel, we've now covered him three times. The Hurricane last year, he got game earlier this year. And now here in a football movie, who would have thought we'd do three Denzel Washington sports movies? And of course, Bev and I covered Malcolm X not that long ago, a couple of years ago. So here's a guy who Bev and I hadn't covered for the first couple of years of this podcast because he didn't have an AFI movie. And I was about to say, hasn't made a great movie. Not true. Two that I would call great, Glory and Malcolm X. But I was about to say that much like, say, Spencer Tracy, one of the best actors of all time, but I would say not really any one great movie. Good movies, a lot of them, but not necessarily great. But then Denzel does have two. But then he's always good in his movies, I would say. Well, no, not Roman J. Israel Esquire. That's terrible. I think he got nominated for an Oscar for that, too. <laughs> but in the three sports that. movies we've... 
and I don't bother. For the three sports movies that we've covered, Hurricane, He Got Game, and this, he's rock solid. Now, he's not an athlete in this one. He's a coach. But we didn't even say the director, by the way, after all this time. But Boaz, I don't know if it's pronounced Yakin or Yakin, Y-A-K-I-N. Did a movie called Fresh earlier in the 90s and then lots of failures, some successes. But apparently going into this movie, he didn't even know anything about football. So it's like Scorsese going into Raging Bull, didn't know anything about boxing. Really? Hard to believe because he made a pretty solid football movie. And you mentioned the writer a minute ago, Gregory Allen Howard, who wrote Ali the year after this, which I guess we should cover at least by next year when it's 20 years old, the Will Smith boxing movie about Muhammad Ali. But then nothing at all, Gregory Allen Howard, for 17 years until he wrote Harriet last year, which is also, of course, a race movie, as Ali is in some ways, and then this one clearly is. So he had a little bit of writer's block in there for a while. Well, I'm guessing he's black if he wrote those three movies. Oh, yeah, it could be. Right, so he's probably being held back for that reason. And then Jerry Bruckheimer was the producer. But he got into producing a lot of Disney movies around this time, too. That guy is so successful at the big blockbusters with Michael Bay and, well, Top Gun, of course, long before Michael Bay came around. And then he started making movies like this, and he got involved in TV shows, too. When did Bruckheimer start doing the Pirates of the Caribbean movies with Disney? The first one was 2003. Okay, so shortly after this, anyway, a few years after this. Yeah, Bruckheimer made a boatload of money with Disney. We can safely say that. How about the can you score factor? I guess I kind of covered this already, but it's a very unsexual movie because it's Disney. But I mentioned yeah. good-looking people do help. But still, you can't score, right? No. Teens are portrayed, even if they're not actually teens. So it's also hard to get into that. And then one of the girls in the movie is truly a teenager, Kate Bosworth. This is an utterly unscorable movie, I think it's safe to say. What about your score? I said I gave it an 8 out of 10 about 20 years ago, 18, whatever years ago. I would say more like a 7 now. 8 out of 10 if I'm generous. Yeah. So somewhere in there, maybe 7.5. I kind of like your 8 out of 10 score. I like this movie a lot more than, frankly, I was expecting to. It succeeded in so many ways where so many movies that we've watched that have attempted similar things have failed miserably in their handling of even basic relationships or trying to evoke basic emotions from the audience, that I was kind of impressed with it in a lot of ways. So leaving aside the individual performances that I liked and Denzel's consistency, I just thought it was a really good movie. So yeah, 8 out of 10, I think. We had to pay for it this time, but I've watched it if it was ever free on television. <laughs> yeah, whenever it appears on one of the 18 streaming services I have, I will watch it again. <laughs> Apparently it's on Disney Plus now. I didn't know that, but I don't have Disney Plus. so Neither do I. How was your beer, by the way? It says it's going to make you pucker, and it made me pucker. So 8 out of 10, okay. Ryan. It's true to advertising. I haven't asked you about your beer in quite a long time, so I was due to do that. My drink is mostly gone. I am drinking some Crown Royal and Diet tonight, the classy bottle. One of these days, I'll join you in a whiskey podcast record. Yeah, one of these days, we need to join each other, period, whether it be recording podcasts or whatever else. Well, that won't be happening probably for the next time we do this in two weeks, but that movie is going to be something on Netflix, unless they take it down. I don't think they will. Film this man's never seen, and I haven't seen, again, much like Remember the Titans in about 15, well, more like 18 years, Girl Fight. Girl Fight is Michelle Rodriguez, directed by Karen Kusama, I think that's her name, or something like that. I'll look that up how you say her name. I think it's Karen Kusama. We haven't done a lot of women leads or a lot of women directors. We cover both those things here. You're not a Rodriguez fan? I am I'm not. not either, but I think she's pretty good in this. And we haven't done a boxing movie since November, so we're due. In fact, I think the last boxing movie was Million Dollar Baby. I think it was The Hurricane with Denzel Washington. I was just thinking female leads. I know Girl Fight is some sort of fighting movie. I don't know if it's MMA She's or, a boxer. or a boxer. Okay, so. She's a boxer, yeah. All right, so it'll be our second female lead boxing movie. Depending on how I feel about Girl Fight, that might be the recording where I need to bust out the whiskey bottle and it'll just turn it to some kind of power hour where I'm taking a shot of whiskey every minute just to get <laughs> through the thought of what I just witnessed. Every time she snarls, you'll be loaded very fast. Yeah, okay. 
<laughs> to make it a drinking game. <laughs> She's known for that snarl. Okay, well, we're both on Twitter. This man's not on there much, and I don't post much. I'm more of a liker and a follower. I'm a, what do you call that? Anyway, I can't think of it. A lurker. So, is that a lurker? That's it, a lurker, yeah. So, I am at moviefiend51. He is at Scoring Out Movies. This podcast and the ones I do with Bev can be found in the same feed on Stitcher, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts under Tabernacle Project. So, look for that. Although, you probably did if you found this one. I don't know how you would have found this and not the other. <laughs> So that wraps up episode 51 of Scoring at the Movies. We're getting close to a two-year anniversary. That'll be in June. Mm-hmm. Take your easy, dudes. I know that you will remember the Titans. I thought you were going to put some Soul Man stank on that, Ryan. I'm a Soul Man. That's one thing I didn't like, the Forrest Gump-esque songs to remind you that you're in the, well, early 70s, but 60s classics. They rely on that a lot. I could have done without that, but yeah, they're good songs. Ain't no mountain high enough, Chris. (laughs) There you go. Ain't no valley low enough. Take her easy, valleys.